Blog Talk Radio. News Network. I'm Brooke Hines. I'm your host tonight. It's March 15. Beware the Ives of March. If you're in a state that votes on Tuesday, like Florida, Florida, Arizona, Illinois, and Ohio, you might want to take extra precaution because the Ives of March this year have brought with them coronavirus. Um, COVID-19. There's a lot going on. We are going to have some great guests tonight, but I want to make sure that everybody knows that even though we are broadcasting live from 7 until 9, you can also tune in to the debate on CNN at 8 p.m. It's from 8 p.m. till 10 p.m. And this is the mano a mano Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden debate. And Uh, Because of coronavirus, the debate was moved from Arizona. I think this is happening in D.C. There's been a lot of last-minute changes. And there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things that are just going on right now that are highly chaotic and really uncertain. And we're going to get into some of that. But first, I want to remind you that we've got Janine Moloff. Janine Moloff is going to come on live at 7.30 p.m. tonight. Uh, I want to get Janine, I want to get everybody who's live uh, I'm going to get their segments run before eight o'clock so you guys can go and watch the debate and then come back to the podcast and listen to the pre recorded segments. Now, our two pre recorded segments are uh, we have a disability activist and lobbyist from Tallahassee, or if you know, who does work in Tallahassee, Faith Olivia Babas. Uh, we'll talk about her challenges with Florida Republican legislators, uh, you know, what it's like doing uh, disability advocacy in Tallahassee uh, with a Republican-controlled legislature. And the second guest of the hour is technical producer and master sound engineer Blair Simmons, founder and former owner of Florida's famous off-the-wall sound company. Um, check that out. We'll, uh, we'll have... Um, Olivia Faith Babis run first at eight o'clock and then I'll do uh, Blair's piece after that. But first, we've got myself and Janine and everything has a coronavirus tinge to it. You know, you just can't get around it. Now, I prepared early for my freak out uh, here at Swampy J Studios. We decided to try to shop for Corona Chan uh, two weeks ago. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what got into me. I was like, let's just go get a bunch of cold medicine. I have not felt well for three weeks. I have an immune deficiency situation and I've been in a flare. So I was just like, screw it. I already feel bad. Let's go and get all of the cold remedies we need and the basics that the kind of convenience food that you want around when, when nobody feels like cooking, you know, and for, for us, that generally means making a big pot of soup or making a big pot of chili or big pots of this and that and having that frozen. Da, 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 da. So there was all this that led to a giant fight. 
I'm not going to lie. That was even before people were rushing to the supermarket and just clearing out the aisles of all the toilet paper. Me and my husband could not go to the store and pick up groceries without like completely bumping heads. And we like almost never do that. The only other place I've seen this happen is Ikea. And God bless you if you go to Ikea with a loved one. It's That's where marriages go to freaking die. There's no way you can start in Ikea at the beginning and do the whole thing with someone you're in a relationship with and still be in a solid relationship with them by the end of it. It is set up to destroy relationships. And then you come home with whatever it is that you bought and you've got to assemble it. I mean, there's, it's really too much, but, uh, but this coronavirus really challenged us two weeks ago. Um, It's still challenging us now because you know, we felt like, yeah, we did our shopping and yada, yada, yada. And now, you know, a lot of the things that we were not concerned about, then our store shelves are cleared out of, you know. And we also kind of got the feeling now, too, that, uh, you know, this being Orlando and the, the tourism here, the international airport, there's so much travel in and out of Orlando. You, you also get the feeling that there's more of a chance that, you know, more often you go out and the more surfaces you touch, the more prone you are to pick up uh, some kind of bug. Now, here's, here's what I've read about coronavirus, that it can live in the air for three hours and that it can live on surfaces for nine hours. And so if you imagine that you're walking through, let's say, Target, and you're, you're, you're going through Target to go to the pharmacy to pick up your medicine for the month, uh, which I did just a few days ago. And I did it on it. I did it before any of this Corona stuff really started hitting. The store was empty. There was nobody in it. And I'm walking through the store and I'm thinking about this three hour aerosolized thing. And I'm thinking, you know, chances are I'm going to walk through any number of bacteria and viruses on my way to the pharmacy, which is already a, you know, that's where sick people go to get their medicines. So if I was going to pick up something from a surface, I probably picked it up there. Uh, those of you who have kids who are in public school or any kind of school, kids in school, kids in school, children, listen to me. Children are vectors for disease. And you probably know that if, if you have children. Um, I'm, I feel lucky because uh, I have dogs and dogs can't get corona. So I can hug my dogs. But uh, if you've got kids and your kids got out of school this week, so what happened here in in Orlando, at least, is that spring break was starting uh, this week, and they extended it. So kids are going to be home for an extended amount of time. This is, as you can imagine, creating all kinds of pressures on families. You know, uh, you already had to figure out what to do with the kids for spring break. Uh, the attractions have shut down largely. Uh, Disney announced this week that they were shutting down for a couple of weeks, and SeaWorld uh, uh, followed suit. And you know, I think most of these things are are shut down. And I think there's, uh, you know, people pretty much give the stink eye to uh, attractions that are that are staying open at this point. Uh, in other states. There have been, uh, in, in Illinois, they're closed, tomorrow they're closing all the bars and restaurants. So if it's not a grocery store or a pharmacy, 
you're not going to be able to go there because, you know, people are freaking stupid. If you were on Twitter today, you saw that downtown Nashville was trending. And, you know, I lived in Nashville for 10 years and I was like, ah, shit, what's, what's happened now? And of course, there's this video of a, of a packed room. I don't think it was Tootsie's. It was like one of the places down on the strip downtown. And it was just packed, you know, and there's this, you know, boots, scooting, boogie kind of bullshit band playing and, uh, and places just packed. And you could just, you, you know, you're, you're looking at this like thick mass of people in a bar at like 11 o'clock at night, you know, and even, uh, even, even in normal times, there's all kinds of gross shit that goes on in a bar at that time of night. But, you know, it's almost like people are taking the attitude that we used to take at the beach when a hurricane came, like, let's get a bunch of liquor and have a hurricane party. Only with coronavirus, if you're going and getting a bunch of liquor or you're getting liquored up with a bunch of people, what you're doing is you're having a corona party. You're going to eventually, if you're going out in masses of people, you're going to encounter this, this virus. And this virus is no joke, Okay. So if you're like in your 20s and you're, you know, making plans for St. Patrick's Day or you've already done some St. Patrick's Day partying, think about this. Even if young people aren't the ones who are susceptible to actually dying from from corona, young people do die from corona. Make no mistake. There are people who are dying from from this virus, Uh, young people who are. But what's going to happen is you're going to pick it up and and likely uh, deposit it. <laughs> you're going to become a vector for somebody's grandmother. You're going to become a vector for somebody's, you know, parents, you know, somebody who's older. You know, just do your part with the social distancing. I'm, not, I'm sure everyone's seen the, the meme of, you know, all of the, the matches that are set up close together. And they all catch fire. And then if one match just steps aside, then the rest of the matches don't catch fire. That's a really good visual metaphor. You know, I I, I really like that because um, I feel like my whole life I have been that match that walks away. I don't like crowds. I don't like being in crowds of people. I don't like going shopping. I don't like any of those things. And uh, also today trending was uh, Gen X. Gen X was trending on Twitter because supposedly Gen X is really good at being alone. So we were supposedly, I'm Gen X, um, just barely, uh, born in 1966. So the cutoff is 1965. There was a time when I was younger that I thought it was unfair that I couldn't be a boomer, but boy, was I mistaken. Um, So my generation uh, was first generation of latchkey kids. We were the first generation that, you know, came home and made a snack and parents weren't there. And we watched whatever bad television after school specials or whatever. And I got to tell you, I didn't participate in that either. Like that is, that is how socially distanced I am for most people. That part of my life was spent on things that I really can't talk about on the air because most of them, you know, they're, they're, there's the, the, uh, I'm not even sure the statute of limitations is hasn't run out, but you know, I, let's let's just say uh, we took full advantage of being latchkey kids. 
that's 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 the way that is. And, I, and I'm reading all these tweets about, yeah, we stayed home and watched Who's the Boss or whatever it was on TV. And I'm like, that does not sound like fun. <laughs> Why would you do that when you had all the freedom in the world to go do whatever the hell you wanted? Anyway, so I got it out of my system. Now I like to be home alone by myself uh, with my dogs and my husband. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, learn how to deal with it. And you also learn that you've got a lot of stuff to do. So today I noticed <laughs> that my uh, that, that my husband was cleaning off his desk for the first time in forever. And I was just like, yes, Corona Chan has improved our lives in a small amount because he got to the point where he was so bored, he just had to do something. Now, Corona is... Uh, People are treating it as if it's, number one, just the flu, and number two, you know, with this kind of gallows humor, like, you know, uh, the kind of humor that only comes from this, this position of you haven't experienced the pandemic yet, okay? Uh, I saw a visual representation today that really kind of blew my mind. And what it was, was the obituaries in Italy. And it was somebody who was who had a newspaper from a month ago, a local newspaper from Italy from a month ago, and a local newspaper in Italy from a day ago. And they turned to the page where there were obituaries. And a month ago, he turned the pages and there were one and a half pages of obituaries. Fast forward a month later to March, that was in February, this is March, Fast forward to March, and as he's rolling through the papers, he's going through the pages, turning the pages, he counts one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There were ten pages, full pages of a broadsheet, ten pages of obituaries in a month. And, you know, so this is a small paper. You know, imagine like the Orlando Sentinel, you know, when you see the obituaries in the Orlando Sentinel. Usually it's about a page or or a, a page and a quarter, it's not that much. Imagine there being 10 whole pages of obituaries in a newspaper, in a broadsheet. That's a lot of people dying. And that's a lot of people dying in a fairly small place. I mean, because we're talking about a local newspaper. We're not talking about USA Today. It's not a national paper. You know, it's just like for, you know, some little city in, you know, Italy. So... That's a pretty staggering representation. Um, I've heard a lot of different variations on the percent of people, you know, what the curve is for, you know, people who, who might could die with this. I've heard everywhere from 2% to 5% to 7%. Uh, people are talking about all different kinds of scenarios. And I've even seen scenarios where they just use 0.7% uh, to, to determine, you know, what, what that would look like with the numbers of people that they expect to get to be infected. Uh, none of these, um, outlooks that I've seen are really geared to the realities of living in the United States with the United with the healthcare system that we have here. Uh, in other countries, you know, of course, if you feel like you have the virus, you can do like like in South Korea, they're doing these drive-throughs, swab and go 
kind of things where, you know, you can get the test and you can find out. Well, instead of doing that, what Donald Trump has done is he he did a, a news conference, not a news conference, was, well, he took some questions. He did like a big announcement in the Rose Garden this week on Friday where it, he basically did an hour-long ad for Quest Diagnostics and LabCorp. And let me tell you, those those two particular companies can just eat my whole ass. I probably shouldn't say that on the radio, but those are the absolute word. They th- those those people at Quest and, and LabCorp are. I freaking hate those places. I hate walking into them. They're disgusting. They're 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 freaking. They're besides being a ripoff. They're they're just gross, awful, terrible places, and they always screw up your billing anyway. So that's who Trump is getting to to. Uh, test (laughs) to test for the coronavirus somehow you know like somehow there's going to be some tests available and you'll be paying the money to LabCorp or somebody will be paying the the money to LabCorp nobody really knows you know and nobody really knows in a country like the United States where uh you know there's a larger it seems like there's a larger percent of us who are uninsured and unable to go to a doctor than those who are insured and are able to go to the doctor. And those of us who are insured and can walk into a doctor of us, you know, many of us can't afford to do that, you know, because uh, first of all, uh, you, you know, that these these tests can cost up to like $1,600. You're going to have to fight with your insurance, you know, but the chances are you're not going to be able to access the test. Our healthcare system is a mess. It's it's not ready for this. I mean, set aside all this stuff that Donald Trump has done with regard to um, uh, uh, obliterating. He, uh, Obama had a, a pandemic coordinating a council within the government that did nothing but coordinate different arms of government for pandemics. And he put it together during the Ebola outbreak. And in 2018, just out of spite, like this thing wasn't, it didn't cost any money. It didn't, you know, it, it wasn't any skin off of anyone's nose. All it was was one guy who was making sure that all of the different departments in the government were coordinated in pandemic response, and he just got rid of it. Um, that just goes to show you, you know, we are so on our own in the U.S. You know, we, we don't... We don't have doctors that, that we feel we can go to. We don't have a government that, that we feel supports us in any way. We don't have a safety net. Most of us don't have a safety net of, of insurance even. We don't know what to do when, when we get sick. And that is why when you go to the natural food store, that the bulk of the money that, that people are making, like on, uh, in the uh, nutrients aisles, these are people trying to figure out how to take care of themselves without going to a doctor. You know, the stuff started uh, multiplying. I used to work in a natural food store. I used to uh, cook in a restaurant attached to a natural food store. And they, the supplement aisle was, yeah, it was like one or two little bookshelves or whatever. And, you know, now you go into any one of these natural foods places and it's, it's, it's the major department in the store. You know, it's, it, it's really a, a, an anchor for, for the store. And the reason why is that we can't walk into a doctor's office and 
get help, you know? So we turn to supplements and we turn to vitamins and we try to fix things through nutrition. We try to fix things through being fit and healthy and, you know, just, just doing the right thing because our country can't do the right thing and provide Medicare for all, which is really, really, really sad. Now, what our country does seem to be doing right now is uh, in the midst of this corona outbreak, that we haven't actually gotten into yet, you know. Uh, there's only been a few cases in the United States, so so we're at the bottom of the curve right now. It's going to curve up really, really quickly. We're in the middle of asking people to go and stand in line to vote, to go and stand in lines. Some of these voting lines in, in Texas and California, people sat there for six hours. Michigan, five hours. Uh, uh, lots of problems in, in California. I encourage, by the way, I encourage all listeners to go to all our listeners to, to Status Quo. Go to Jordan Sheridan Station, Status Quo. He's got, in the video that he just posted today, he's got Tina, Tina Desiree Berg who did an amazing report. I'm going to see if I can't uh, um, get, get her to share it with us. She did an amazing report on the trouble that people had voting in California. And it looks like Bernie voters, like somewhere around 350,000 Bernie voters were um, had trouble getting a ballot at the poll. Now this has to do with the, uh, um, no party affiliation, you know, people who are, uh, who feel like they're, they don't want to be a Democrat, they don't want to be a Republican, so they do no party preference, NPP. When you're an NPP in California, you have to do this mother may I kind of, you know, open sesame, weird invocation when you're at the voting place in order to get a ballot that has the Democratic presidential preference on it. If you weren't an NPP voter, uh, uh, they were doing everything they could to make sure that you didn't get a Democratic ballot uh, with, with, the, with the preference on. Uh, so lots of problems there, but now that's in the rear view mirror because what's starting to happen now is people are starting to get afraid to go and vote in Illinois, in Florida, in Ohio, and in Arizona. And there's a petition going around that um, uh, Kevin Gostola of Shadowproof has, has been working on this for a few days. I started seeing him circulate it um, at least two days ago. And he's got, at this point, he's got more than 100 medical professionals and more than 1,400 people signing a petition for uh, officials to postpone in-person voting in-person voting in Arizona, Florida, Illinois, and Ohio. And remember, again, bars and restaurants are, are starting to be closed mandatory in, in Illinois, at least on uh, Monday. So, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive that you would close down bars and restaurants and then encourage people to go in person and stand in line to vote. Now, real quick, uh, this, this petition is an open letter to extend mail-in voting and reschedule March primaries amid the pandemic. 
This letter is addressed to DNC Chair Tom Perez and members of the Democratic National Committee and to the Secretaries of State of Arizona, Florida, Illinois, Ohio, and Georgia. Uh, the next round of presidential primaries scheduled for March 17. And then the next primary scheduled for Georgia in March, on March 24, uh, he says in this petition, present a dangerous state of affairs. All five states have declared states of emergency or have patients in quarantine in response to the COVID-19 novel coronavirus outbreak. Hundreds of sick and multiple Hundreds are sick and multiple people have died. It has resulted in numerous cancellations and postponements, including a presidential campaign event in Cleveland and Tampa. And I got a story right here. Joe Biden cancels Tampa campaign rally amid coronavirus concerns. And they, they canceled the Arizona debate that was going to be in Arizona that you're going to tune into at 8 o'clock on CNN and watch. Uh, they rescheduled that for... Um, or uh, put that in D.C. rather than in Arizona. Um, we've already seen long lines uh, for, for voters in states like Texas and Michigan. The amount of time standing in line with hundreds or even thousands of other voters substantially increases the likelihood that somebody will get sick. Uh, so there's that. Petition going around. Um, the other thing, really quick, and this is super important and super weird also, I like weird, right? Um, let's go back here. I've got a clip for you. This is um, from Arizona. There he is. Arizona announced that they were going to close some like something like a hundred polling places to try and contain the coronavirus, and the uh, the official who was announcing this walked off as he was announcing this at his press conference he walked away and said i can't do this um so it's it's kind of a long clip but i'm going to cut to the chase i'm going to cut to the chase like halfway in let's pick it up here they'd be able to have that uh that polling location be available to them and then our poll workers would be able to make sure that all those high-touch surfaces were cleaned so what this plan does is that we've had 229 polling locations available um, prior to the plan. And then after the, the board's vote, I went and performed an analysis to make sure that all those voters had uh, 151 vote anywhere vote centers. This now, we're taking this from those voters had 41 voting locations before these 151. Now they have um, 50, 151 vote locations that they can choose from. And then with that, um, we're also going to be um, providing uh, those voters with uh, uh, the options and the ability to, uh, I'm sorry, I can't. And that's it, that's, that's what he said. I'm sorry, I can't do this. And he just walked off. Now, I, I'm familiar with people who have panic attacks. I'm familiar with what that looks like. It looks to me like, like this guy is having a panic attack, but we don't know why he was having a panic attack. He was just announcing that uh, a, a number of polling places were closing. And I've got the numbers here. It's um, from 229 polling places down to 159. And uh, 
a lot of people have been, there's been a lot of speculation about what was going on there, whether he was feeling guilty or shameful or whatever. It was just a very odd moment. But I think the takeaway there is that Arizona is uh, depleting the number of, of places that you can go vote. I'm a Florida voter. I mailed in my ballot already. Uh, what I usually do, though, on Election Day is check out my, uh, my, my precinct over here and see what it looks like. I always do that. Uh, usually during presidential primaries, it's not that bad. Uh, so I'm going to check it out on Tuesday uh, if the voting happens in person on Tuesday. There is a good chance. We are in a level of uncertainty now that is just remarkable. But there is a chance that... Uh, some of these states, uh, Florida, Arizona, Illinois, Ohio, and Georgia, there's, there's a chance that, that they will change their voting procedure. And I think that would be a good thing. I really do. Um, now, we've got we got to move right along. We've got Janine Moloff, who is right here. And I'm just going to bring you right in, Janine. There you go. Okay. And Janine. Janine's here. She's going to talk about uh, uh, something about price gouging and uh, a, a bill that had come up, an amendment on it that Paul Wellstone and Bernie Sanders had worked on. And there's an interesting intersection for this very moment because Joe Biden, it turns out, voted against this. So take it away. I want you to tell this whole story. It's fascinating. Okay. Thank you, Brooke. Well, with the COVID-19 virus nearing pandemic proportions, people are demanding answers. In the U.S., the government response has not only been inadequate, it is at a level of what can only be called criminal malfeasance. This level of criminal malfeasance has deep roots that go back some 25 years to the Clinton administration. The reason middle-class and low-income-level Americans cannot access life-saving drugs for diabetes, hepatitis, many forms of cancer, HIV, or the growing COVID-19 epidemic is due to this perfect storm of corporate abuse aided by armies of attorneys, Congress, a few presidents, and one presidential candidate favored by the corporate wing of the DNC. Once upon a time, the U.S. had a provision in in law governing any medical research conducted with public money, otherwise known as taxpayer dollars. This provision was called the Reasonable Pricing Pricing Clause, and it mandated by law that any drugs, treatments, or diagnostic assessments developed with public money must be, quote, reasonably priced, period. There weren't any exceptions. The story reveals how that level of accountability was tossed out with the trash by a Democratic president supported by a DNC presidential candidate a GOP-controlled Congress, and entire armies of attorneys working for Big Pharma. Not only was the reasonable pricing clause kicked to the curb, but corporate attorneys for Big Pharma also saw to it that price tags for life-saving drugs were kept obscenely high, abusing the patient the I'm sorry, abusing the patent process. Martin Shurkeli did not come up with this all on his own. Now we have an epidemic on our hands, namely COVID-19, which is being bungled by Trump and what can only be called is the end of sniveling coatings. And the above-mentioned issues are the reason why COVID-19 treatments or screening assessment kits are unavailable to most. The public has been kept in the dark regarding the history of these acts of duplicity committed by both the GOP and the DNC. In this drama, 
there is another, there is one unlikely, allegedly grouchy hero who is also a presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders. I discovered this item after reading the insightful reporting from Glenn Greenwald's publication, The Intercept, in an article by Ryan Grimm and Ada Chavez titled, From the Intercept, How the Senate Paved the Way for Coronavirus Profiteering and How Congress Could Undo It. So basically, we have a situation where before we could even expect a vaccine to combat coronavirus, um, the Trump administration has walked back you know, the initial refusal to promise that any type of treatment would be affordable to the general public. Um, Alex Azar was quoted as saying, uh, and he's the Health and Human Services Secretary, uh, we quote, we can't control that price because we need the private sector to invest, end quote. And Alex Azar is not only Health and Human Services Secretary under Trump, but he's also a former drug industry executive. Azar also is not a medical doctor. He's a lawyer. Now, there was a lot of blowback, and the administration backpedaled and said, no, any treatment would be affordable. Of course, like most of Trump's promises, it's basically, uh, it's like saying you're a little bit pregnant, all right? There's no such thing. So Donald Trump tweeted that he would meet with major pharmaceutical companies, and, of course, everybody saw the press conference he gave the other day where he declared a national emergency. In addition to that, he paraded out several uh, big pharma CEOs, including, I believe, one was from Gilead, which is going to be talked about a little later. And it looked more like a commercial and an award ceremony than it did a statement announcing a national emergency and reassuring the public. So where does this come back from? This goes back all the way to 1995, the Clinton administration. And here's what happened. The federal government, under Bill Clinton, traded away one major tool used to keep drug prices affordable. And Gilead Sciences was one of the promoters pushing this back then and now still interfering. So Gilead Sciences is a drug, uh, drug maker, and according to The Intercept, they're known for price gouging. They've also worked with Chinese health authorities um, to see if this experimental drug, remdesivir, can treat coronavirus. It's been used for others, and that's according to CNN. Now, the World Health Organization states that remdesivir is the only effective treatment for COVID-19. And Gilead's drug sciences, uh, basically, when that announcement was made, shares of the biotech firm. Gilead Sciences rose 5% Monday, and that was after the World Health Organization made that statement. The shortage of medicines and screening tests is very convenient for Gilead and for other biotech. Apparently, on Monday, Gilead Sciences was, the, according to this, the second best performing stock in the S&P 500 and was just one of two stocks in the NASDAQ trading higher on Monday after the Dow plunged, and this is according to CNN Business. So there's only one drug, and that was in February, there's only one drug right now that may have efficacy, and that's remdesivir. Now, the World Health Organization officials, you know, were saying clinical trials will begin. Um, and Gilead Sciences, you know, is basically in on the studies. Now, here's what happened, though. There's other groups, too, besides this. Um, there was, there's other big pharma that benefits from this. 
in terms of the coronavirus. Uh, Johnson & Johnson, GlaxoSmithKline, we're also working on vaccines. Biotech company AbbVie, V um, and Swiss pharma giant Roach and Japan's True Guy are all working on something. Uh, here's the problem. In 1995, Bill Clinton caved in to demands from the GOP and from Big Pharma, and they decided that they didn't need the reasonable pricing uh, situation any longer. Getting right back to this, give me a second here. I had to get this together very quickly today. Um, well, the Clinton administration sold out, all right? Now, why this is important is because our public dollar has funded medical research that the private sector, in other words, big pharma, has price gouged from and no accountability has been provided for the public dollar that created this research. So when they claim they did all this research, that's actually not, it's not totally true. Now, remdesivir, the medicine that may very well be effective on COVID-19, was previously tested to treat Ebola, it was developed a research conducted at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and this was um, according to UAB. Now, the dark secret of the D.C. polls are buried deep to protect their corporate masters. Again, much of Big Pharma's alleged research costs have been developed on the public dime. In 1995, the Clinton administration um, basically sold us out. Now, before that, drug companies were required to sell drugs funded with public money at a reasonable price. This was referred to as the reasonable pricing clause, the reasonable pricing rules they said in my introduction. Yet the 94 midterms, the Republicans came screaming in, and Bill Clinton was trying to reform health care. Big Pharma pressured Clinton to pitch the reasonable pricing rule out with the trash. Clinton administration capitulated, and they rescinded the, long, the, the reasonable pricing rule. Now, the damning quote from the National Institute of Health in 95, the big lie, gave Bill Clinton and the GOP in Congress what they wanted and what they needed to justify the scam. The NIH in 1995 said, quote, an extensive review of this matter over the past year indicated the pricing clause has driven industry away from potentially beneficial scientific collaborations with public health service scientists without providing an offsetting benefit to the public, end quote. Uh, again, quote, eliminating clause, in other words, the reasonable pricing clause, will promote research that can enhance the health of the American people, end quote, which is a total lie. And this is why insulin, which used to be within affordability for most people, is now only affordable to billionaires. This is why we have zero perk for COVID-19. Were there any champions? Yes. And then relatively unknown congressman from Vermont, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has been known as the Amendment King, and he came to the rescue. He basically uh, authored an amendment to reinstate a reasonable pricing rule. It failed on a party line vote 242 to 180. Bernie came back in 2000. He was the author of a bipartisan amendment in the House that would reimpose the reasonable pricing rule. It passed in the House. The late Senator Paul Wilson made a similar attempt in the Senate. But, and again, many congressmen. They, were, they found it really hard to argue with Sanders. Uh, and Sanders' line, Bernie's line was, quote, Americans must pay twice 
for life-saving drugs. First as taxpayers to develop the drug, and then as consumers to pad pharmaceutical profits, end quote. And that was in the journal Nature. Along comes Senator Joe Biden. And just like, I'm going to say it, the slimy spider of Little Miss Muffet's name who sat down beside them, a.k.a. Big Pharma, he voted to table Wellstone's amendment, which helped lead to its defeat. And it was defeated in the Senate with 56 through 39. Ernie's response was quite simple. Quote, our amendment requires that the NIH, National Institute of Health, abide by current law and ensure that a company that receives federally owned research or a federally owned drug provide that product to the American public on reasonable terms. And he said this in a floor speech, end quote. Quote, this is not a new issue. During the Bush administration, the NIH insisted that cooperative research agreements contain, quote, a reasonable pricing clause that would protect consumers from exorbitant prices of products developed from federally funded research, end quote. Again, note that Bernie honestly gave credit to George Bush Sr.'s administration, as even they respected the reasonable pricing rule prior to 1995. When Bernie pushed it in 2000, arguing again that we need to require that drugs funded on the public dime be sold to the public at a reasonable price, it was stripped out of the conference. Now, wow. Senator Wyden did successfully insert language into the final Senate bill, but the language was weak. And the language basically said, the language that made it into the final Senate bill watered down and said the director of the NIH should offer, quote, a proposal to require a reasonable rate of return on both intramural and extramural research by March 31st, 2001, end quote. Now, note how there's no provision or any sort of enforcement tool, just a meek reassurance couched in the language of vague promises. Bernie's tougher direct language was removed, stripped out of the final bill in conference committee. Mind you, this is the same committee Joe Biden was on. The two measures, they were hashed out in committee, Again, Sanders lost. And to source the site, anyone with the claim it's fake news, it's not. The site, the documentation was received. It's a record of the 106th Congress. The conference report language included this vague statement that provides zero effective accountability because of that same vague language. The nonsense language. Quote, this is what the conference report said. The conferees have been made aware of the public interest in securing an appropriate return on the NIH investment in basic research. The conferees are also aware of the mounting concern over the cost to patients of therapeutic drugs. By July 2001, based on lists of such therapeutic drugs, which are FDA approved, have reached $500 billion per year in sales in the United States and have received NIH funding. NIH will bear a plan to ensure that taxpayers' interests are protected, end quote. What does this language mean? Well, I'm glad the NIH was aware at the time of the public interest in providing accountability for public money spent on medical research and development, R&D. How are they going to ensure that taxpayers' interests are protected? The fact is this. This elusive promise plan was, and here's the other thing, this elusive promise plan, Biden, mm -hmm. never begun, mm -hmm. never implemented, never. And so now... We have another instance where the Antiviral Drug Discovery and Developmental Development Center at the University of Alabama in 2019, they received a five-year, $37.5 million grant, dollar grant from the, NI, from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Now, that's one of some 27 institutes that comprise the NIH. The fact is this. We can't wait for the DNC or the GOP to do the right thing. 
They've both mm-hmm. proven utterly unwilling to respect our rights or the public time. Research and development funded by public tax money must benefit the public, and pricing of such drugs, treatments, procedures, or devices that came either directly or indirectly from public funding must be reasonably priced at the pre-Clinton-era law mandated. The CEOs and lobbyists of Big Pharma must be held accountable, as well as members of Congress and ex-President Bill Clinton. This is why insulin is only affordable if you're a billionaire. This is why Martin Schreck Kelly got away with this for a while. This is why there's a shortage of COVID-19 diagnostic test kits, medicines, and medical equipment such as face masks and respirators. This is why people are needlessly dying, and this is all premeditated by the 1% who control Big Pharma and the willing assistance of the GOP-controlled Congress, President Bill Clinton, and, yes, presidential candidate Joe Biden. The only heroes in this scenario are the late Senator Paul Wellstone and, yes, presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, the mensch, which means a good person. So, Bidol, you, you mentioned that, and they pre- pledged to say that, you know, they're going to go by it, but the fact is it is weak. So now we're looking at, okay, why was this allowed to happen? And there's a couple of different things. I'm going to try and whiz through this pretty quickly. And okay. one of the things... And, and we may have to do a second part to this, seriously. Um, mm-hmm. I looked around, and there's a couple of different things that allowed this to occur. One of them has to do not only with the fact that you have um, big pharma that can basically price whatever they like once the, the pricing rule was tossed out, but you, and, and again, but you also have the monopoly of patent law. And there were a couple different um, articles that I found. One, ironically, um, this patent law tried a novel approach to fight big pharma prices because they're talking about the armies of big pharma. Um, and there was a lawsuit and alleged that big drug companies fraudulently obtained patent extensions to block generics. And a lot of times those extensions are based on perhaps maybe they changed one unimportant inert ingredient that made no difference in the drugs the drug's efficacy and that allowed them to maintain their their um, their patent and their monopoly <clears throat> now the other reason has to do with again these patent extensions it, it goes right into this because this allows for extra years of monopoly that nobody can afford <clears throat> and the people are dying people that suffer from hepatitis C for instance uh, various forms of, of cancer and so on are suffering. And so basically what we see is the scientific research and, de- and development used um, to develop drugs was conducted, again, on the tax- taxpayer dollar. Um, but here's the thing. Needed pharmaceuticals, withholding them, is, le- is legal profession. They push to extend patent production on fraudulent grounds. And this was uh, an article written by Fran Quigley, who is a clinical professor and director of the health and Human Rights Clinic Law at Indiana University McKinney School of Law, who's also a coordinator of People for People of Faith for I'm sorry, People of Faith for Access to Medicine. And my question is, are you listening, Mr. Pence? And she uh, Fran quickly wrote in the Health and Human Rights Journal in 2017, um, patent fighters taking on big pharma. And I spoke about these two attorneys, international attorneys, Priti Christel and Tahir Amin. And they were young lawyers. This article was written in 17. They walked away from 
very lucrative jobs in very Tony law firms. Arstel was in Los Angeles, Amin was in London. They both traveled to India because they wanted to make a difference in the lives of the sick and poor. And what they found was truly hideous. Um, they saw the protests in the streets and technocratic fights at the patent office uh, because people that were deathly ill with hepatitis or HIV or whatever could not access medications. And to give you an example, and the patent protection keeps cheaper generics out of the marketplace. Um, and patents prevent competition. So to give you an example, hepatitis C drugs, so Fosbuvir, this drug costs $1 per pill to make. But one pill sold to patent holder Gilead Sciences, they, they charge as much as $1,000 per pill for a hepatitis C drug that only costs them a dollar to make. I am not kidding. And wow. so Chris and Amin, they found their opportunity to challenge in 2006. They founded this group that was going to basically um, challenge the patent situation in India. And they call it IMAC, which is the Institute for Medicine's Access and Knowledge. And they were, they took, they got together with lawyers and scientists and they scrutinized patents on medicines that were priced outside the reach of most of us. And then many of these same professionals, again, left behind very lucrative jobs, um, and they hopped on planes. They headed to patent offices, in this instance, in India. And, you know, again, what they, they filed objections to patent examiners. You know, there, here we had what they called billion-dollar decisions made in anonymous patent office. You know, the patent offices uh, – Bureaucrats were really no match for what Big Pharma has been described as having floors full of lawyers. I call it an army of lawyers. Now, some of the most promising treatments, it gets worse. Some of the most promising treatments, including for cancer, are what are called biologics. And biologics are produced from living organisms or they have components of living organisms. Now, they, they have a lot of promise. The FDA approved seven generic versions of biologics or what they call biosimilars. And that should contribute to lower or reasonably priced meds. But four of those biologics aren't available because of what's called patent thickets. And that's an invention of Big Pharma's industry attorney. A patent thicket was described in a 2001 paper by Carl Shapiro, according to the journal titled Yale Insights, published by the Yale School of Management. Shapiro said a patent thicket was, quote, a dense web of overlapping intellectual property rights that a company must hack its way through in order to actually commercialize new technology, end quote. And this creates what Yale Insights Journal called, quote, a prisoner's dilemma. Everyone has an incentive to have the biggest patent portfolio, end quote. Now, add to the situation the inconvenient truth that much of the medical scientific research that Big Pharma uses isn't from their own R&D budget, but from publicly funded research. In essence, it could be argued that Big Pharma is stealing publicly funded research, or at least acting as a corporate freeloader while the public suffers. And in terms of this COVID-19 crisis, people die needlessly, and all because going all the way back to 1995, the Clinton administration caved to Big Pharma and tossed out the reasonably priced legal standard with yesterday's trash, or in Bill Clinton's case, tossed with the used condoms. I had to go there. <laughs> so IMAC is making some big challenges. And 
they've participated in patent, contested patents in 47 countries. So my rhetorical question is, why can't good old Joe Biden playing tough guy actually do the right thing? Answer, too lucrative to do the criminal building, bidding of big pharma. Dr. Aaron Kesselheim, associate professor at Harvard Medical School, studied the impact of intellectual property rules on access to medications. To quote Dr. Kesselheim, quote, there are many ways the patent system is gained to the detriment of public health, but patent reviews are such highly technical and arcane processes that individual patients and physicians don't have the skills to engage at that level. So we desperately need organizations like IMAX to get involved there. Their work has already helped significantly improve access to lower-cost medicines in multiple countries. End quote. Can you hear that, Joe, from Harvard Medical School? Again, Gilead Sciences, Hepatitis C drug, the Fosbuver, heads the big pharma walk of shame. So, you know, the good news is the Fosbuver um, cures over 95% of those who receive the medicine for hepatitis C. And hepatitis C complications, if it goes untreated, can include liver cancer. The bad news, Gilead set the price for Stafosbuver as high as, get this, $84,000 for 12 weeks' worth of the drug, while the estimated generic cost is $250 for the same treatment. Gilead does have some agreements with generic manufacturers for lower-cost versions in poor nations. But middle-income nations are not allowed in the deal. This means a middle-class American, even with insurance, would not be able to access this life-saving drug due to Jillian's greedy price gouging, and it's all legal since the reasonably priced standard was dumped. Compliments of Bill Clinton and Joe Biden. The wow. Fact, the science, yes, there's, there is no guesswork here. And Doctors of Borders also weighed in with their access campaign. And they said IMAC has really effectively used these arguments to try and increase access to these life-saving medications. To quote them, um, the idea of challenging patents at their origin or fighting against patent extensions has gone from being a small corner of the advocacy in this field to a mainstay, and that's because IMAC has led the way, end quote. IMAC is, wants to make sure they under, people understand they're not anti-patent. In fact, IMAC states that their advocacy is supportive of innovation, but not when patents are dishonestly exploited by changing minor or inert ingredients or claiming as their own what was developed in the public sphere on the public dollar for the express purpose of exploiting markets. And IMAC has stated this exploitation of the patent process is widespread as attorneys over-patent and write bogus extensions, fraudulent extensions for outdated patents. And that was quoting both, that was both from Christelle and Amin of IPAC. Um, to quote them, when the patent system allows over-patenting extensions of old patents, it just means that companies are investing more on lawyers and marketing and less in research with something new, and it hurts patients. Now, IMAC is now partnering with advocates to file challenges of unjustified patents internationally. They call this their army of patent detectives. IMAC works with attorneys filing challenges to price gouging via the patent abuse process on HIV and hepatitis drugs. It's working. Gilead has already withdrawn some of their questionable patent applications. So this is what we're actually dealing with here, and that, once again, people need to understand, and what they fully really need to understand, when they can't get COVID-19 medications, when they can't afford insulin 
when they can't get uh, medication for hepatitis C, unless it's along the charity route or they go totally bankrupt and lose their house, they need to understand one thing. This is all because going back to 1995, Bill Clinton went along with the Republicans and they tossed the reasonably priced clause in the law. And that allowed Big Pharma to price gouge on anything. And the only person, aside from Paul Wellstone, that fought like this, fought like crazy to protect people has been Bernie Sanders. And again, this is an instance where it doesn't matter. This is not partisan. It doesn't matter whether you personally like Bernie. It doesn't matter whether you like Joe Biden. That is irrelevant. What is relevant is accountability. And as as citizens here, we have a right to accountability. We have a right to accountability in the law and transparency, and we have a right to have accountability that when we pay for, for research and development, a medical scientific research and development, we have a right to know that that is going to benefit us. And any time Big Pharma acts as a corporate freeloader and uses that and doesn't reimburse the public dollars, public coffers, then we have a problem here. So when we're looking at presidential campaigns, I don't care if people think, and again, I don't care if people think Bernie is grouchy or mean or whatever, because frankly, I would rather have an honest grouch in the Oval Office than a charmer that's more like a snake. Mm -hmm. The fact is, past records matter. And Biden's past record has been, along with Big Pharma, he blocked, he blocked this amendment in the Senate that, he was, that Bernie was working on with, with uh, late Paul Wellstone, and that is inexcusable. In the meanwhile, Bernie went and he kept fighting, and he's been mocked, and he's been abused, but uh, you know what? As a fellow liberal Jew, I don't care what anyone says. I am so grateful for Bernie Sanders. He is a mensch. And he did what's called a mitzvah, which is a good thing. And you do a good thing with the idea that you don't do it for recognition. You do it mm-hmm. because it's the right thing to do. That's right. So that's my report. Wow. That's staggering. And, and uh, while you're reading that, I just caught some breaking news. The new CDC guidelines are saying mm-hmm. no gatherings over 50 people for eight weeks. Uh, no gatherings of any size without social distancing, hand hygiene, and protecting vulnerable populations. And we were talking about this a little bit earlier. I'm one of the kind of vulnerable That's populations. And I too. Yes, and so you understand. So, like, when you get – I can't go to a movie theater and come home. You know, I always bring something home from a movie theater. Right. So now, now they're saying – Everything needs to be canceled for eight weeks. That includes concerts, sporting events, parades, festivals, weddings, yeah. and other other types of assemblies. And so the question arises, you know, is Congress, right. does, like, how, do, how does that happen? And, and how do we vote, especially, you know, these uh, four or five states that we are coming up on Tuesday? It's a, it's a good question. And I would just say, you know, this one drug that looks, that was used for Ebola looks very promising. And mm-hmm. we need to enforce 
them to make it affordable, and Alex Azar needs to basically face criminal malfeasance charges. Um, he has a clear remdesivir is what it's called. Um, the fact is, you know, I, I'm one of those vulnerable people, too, and COVID-19 can recur as well. Yeah, that's right. away. This is outrageous. And, and once again, we need to hold people criminally accountable. Mm-hmm. And I do mean criminally accountable. These mm-hmm. people in Congress allowed this to happen. There are medications that are available. We can't access them. Even Cuba can access them. Cuba was able to aid China and send that medication on through. Now, if Cuba can do it, there is no excuse why we can't. There's no excuse why we don't have sufficient ventilators and masks and so on. This is all about profiteering. And the GOP is in charge, but let's face it, the corporate wing of the DNC, including Joe Biden, they have remained far too silent about this. This is outrageous. And we need to hold people criminally accountable, period. Agreed. And, Agreed. We also, and we also need to realize at the end of the day, the only hero there has been Bernie Sanders. And I hope the voters in Florida understand that. You don't have to like him, but you certainly do have to respect his integrity. Absolutely. Well, Janine, thank you so much. We are going to uh, turn now to some of uh, the uh pre-recorded stuff and you know remind people that that if you are watching the biden uh, bernie debate it is starting right now on cnn and you can access all of the pnn archives and this episode at pnngo.com pnngo.com you'll find all of the stuff there you can also uh subscribe via itunes and uh we'll talk again next week janine how about that Okay. Sounds great. Brooke. Have a good one. Super duper. You too. All right. Okay, so bye-bye. next we've next we've got after all that heavy stuff, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you have a listen to let's start with Blair Simmons. This is the uh master sound engineer and former owner of Florida's famous off the wall sound company. Blair Simmons coming uh, your way right now. Uh, over the years, uh, PNN has brought you Uh, Not just the activist community, but we bring in uh, artists, uh, writers, poets, musicians, and production professionals, producers, because I think they all contribute to making this a better world. Uh, A producer is a person who takes a thousand different individual pieces and brings them together so that magic happens, so that some place, some time Uh, Some people that might randomly be walking by, suddenly their attention is captured because some magic happens. So I'm bringing you today one of the real amazing production professionals from Miami. You can call him a producer. You can call him a technical producer. He's been called a sound engineer and worse. (laughs) But this is a man who I have had the great honor to know for over 30 years, a real production professional, a man with an impeccable reputation as a sound engineer and a staging and production professional. I'd like to introduce Mr. Blair Simmons. Blair, welcome. Uh, thank you, Rick. Pleasure to be here with you. Well, uh, many many of our, our uh, friends we have in common have been on the show before. Uh, I've had sound engineers. I've had talented musicians. And one of the things I always try to ask them is, you know, 
most people live a life, you know, they're, maybe they have friends and family, maybe they have jobs and, and careers, maybe they have, you know, recreational things that they do. But there are certain people in every society who pull together disparate parts, who pull together resources and, and build something, even something temporary, that is absolutely unique and couldn't exist without those millions and millions of parts and pieces. And to me, that's one of the things that the, the magic that a producer does. So Blair, let me ask you, I've known you many years as a sound engineer and production professional. Um, how did you first get involved with music? Were you a young student musician? Did you play in school? Or did you just enjoy music? I guess my first experience was playing trumpet in uh, junior high, but that no was short. But that was short-lived. Yeah, I'm a reformed trumpet player myself. Uh, um, now, of course, it, it, you know it, it, I'm going to say that we're probably roughly the same age. Uh, you were a, a young man, a, a child in the 50s and 60s. Uh, when you were in the 60s, you know, trumpet playing, uh, trumpets by and large were not the popular instrument of the time, the guitars and all that. Did you get involved when you were in high school with, the, you know, rock bands and that sort of thing? Oh, no, no, no. I, I was actually in uh, just in the high school band, and it only lasted one year. I ended up getting braces, and it was just a little difficult playing trumpet and dealing with braces. So I oh, actually, that's for sure. Actually, I didn't continue that, except for the fact that, like, 30 years later, I traded the trumpet for some audio gear. <laughs> okay, well, well, let me ask you this. If I'm not mistaken, you grew up in Georgia, right? Right, I grew up in Augusta, Georgia. What brought you to South Florida? Um, the story goes that I had a friend that was working with a band in Augusta, and he had moved back home and he and I started hanging out again because he lived across the street and he realized I was into electronics to some degree and wanted to know if I wanted to work with a band. So I joined a local band and worked with them for a little while. During that process, the band ended up uh, disbanding only because uh, they just couldn't get the work they had hoped for. And being a 10 piece band, it was difficult trying to make oh, any wow. room trying to make any real money. A couple of us had full-time jobs um, just to make ends meet. But Dixie Greggs was also from my hometown, Steve Morris. And hmm. he had gone to the University of Miami and had met Rod Glaubman back in the day. And uh, Rod had hired him to come down and do a couple jobs in Miami. And he asked me um, if I wanted to come down and work with him and so my partner and I, his name was Drake, we grabbed uh, our sound gear that we had, uh, the band truck, and came down to Miami and did a few jobs with Pace and Rod, and that's how we met Rod. It was uh, a few years later that Rod had asked my partner, did he want to come back and, and do sound for, for Pace? Um, it took about a year for that to happen, and at that point, my partner had decided to join the Navy, so Rod had called me, and I said, sure, why not? Let's move to Miami. And that's how it started for me working for Pace. Oh, that's neat. Um, Pace, for people who don't know, was an amazing organization that managed to bring some really interesting pieces together. 
It, it was able to pay musicians to play public shows quite often. It was able to bring together the need of the marketplace to have an entertainment, to have something going on at their mall or their show or their store or their park. And Pace provided this glue and a technical expertise that combined some money from the musicians' union that came from the <laughs> purchase of records, something they used to put on put audio on many, many years ago. And from those sales, there was money prepared for live entertainment. So that plus these merchants who were able to kick in or some municipalities, whether it be cities or counties, all that money came together so that musicians could be paid and they would bring, when they were lucky, some talented production professionals, people like Blair, to come out and help the musicians make sure that that was a, a quality entertainment. Now, back then, I, I have to frame this a little bit, back then Miami was a very different town in the 60s and 70s than it has become over the years. It went from kind of a sleepy southern town with a couple little individual entertainment districts like the Grove and the Beach to now where there's things going on all the time. And it is such an amazing multicultural town. Uh, that's one of the things I loved about it most. You could drive three blocks and be in what amounted to a completely different civilization. Different culture, different language, uh, different signage, uh, different food. Uh, it's, it's an amazing, amazing town. Now, you were in Miami in the 70s. What were some of the things that struck you when you first came down? Um, musically or just in general? Because in, in, general, general, I, in, general. in general, I was quite surprised how the traffic would change from uh, winter to the summer because the traffic on the highways as I would travel to jobs with space like the zoo or somewhere else across town, the, the snowbirds, you could actually see the increase in traffic and the decrease in traffic before and after the winter season. That you don't see anymore because the population has just gotten so large that it's, that it's so different. But in the population increasing, the diversity of music also increased as well. You know, that's another thing I wanted to mention. Uh, you know, people probably, first, they don't think about sound engineers very much anyway. But those of us who do realize that uh, sound reinforcement, sound support for an ensemble can vary completely wildly. One day a sound engineer might be asked to, to do sound mixing for a speech from a, a corporate head. Next day it might be, or the same day later, uh, entertainment at a club or entertainment outdoors in a park or uh, an entertainment in a theater space. You have dealt with so many of those places in, in all of the big halls and small halls across town. I'm sure there's not a town... Uh, 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 a room uh, performance place in Miami that you haven't done a, a project in. I know in my short period of producing things in town, I did things like uh, stage a jazz concert on the marquee at Gusman Hall. What were some of the most unusual places you've put on entertainments, whether it be an ensemble or a speech or something like that? Um, there's There were so many. I mean, uh, doing like parts of the orchestra at schools, uh, Pace used to do what they called the four families of the orchestra, and they would take the different sections of the orchestra and go around and do school events. And then at some point in time, they would take the whole orchestra together and take it to a theater like Sunrise and perform 
the whole orchestra would perform, and they would bring all the school children in and show them how the parts of the orchestra fit together to create a full orchestra. And then the most unusual, some of the other unusual things was doing music on a barge. Or one time, the Florida Philharmonic got hired to perform for the opening of Williams Island, and they placed two or three musicians in every porch, every window that was... Oh, my goodness. Right. So there was like 10 or 15 stories, and you had 30 or 40 musicians, two or three musicians sitting on every balcony of of every future little condo. And we... uh, How interesting. provided the production for that we convinced them that the easiest way to do it because it was just going to be insanity to try to put microphones <laughs> and try and try to coordinate all right try to coordinate all the music we convinced them to let us come into a rehearsal and record the rehearsal and then what uh, we did we we took that music and we broadcast that music during the event put one of the monitors in a cherry picker that the conductor was in so he could hear it and follow through it and it was the simplest way out. It was a quite unusual way to do it, not so much uh, technically, but uh, they stuck us in a You solved the production how, problem. Right. How are you going to mic, you know, 40, 50 people <laughs> all, all, o- all over the balconies of the Williams Island? And uh, <laughs> the easiest way to do oh, it is re- record it live at the rehearsal hall and, and play it back. Well, that's that's a great solution. Uh, I know uh, we've done so many shows together. Uh, I, I remember uh, producing some stuff with you when we did uh, concerts on Miami Beach. And literally, people have no appreciation for how complex it is to have an entire sound and lighting system out on up on a beach. It sounds well, no, like they, an easy idea. Oh, it's very know. different. They don't get it. They don't realize. I mean, you have a promoter that, that says to you or an event program, you know, whomever saying, well, why does it cost so much? It's only an hour performance. But <laughs> sure, you, you don't get it. You know, the mall opens at 10. You expect me to bring everything into the mall, set it up by 10 so we're not interfering with your patrons, and wait around until your show is at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and it's an hour show, and then wait around again until 11 o'clock at night to load it all out. And they don't realize, you know, here we are, 16-hour day for your technicians, and they whine about how it's just an hour. No, it's not. No, it's not by any means. Well, another thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, because you're in a, the perfect position to uh, to give a good perspective on it, is – Think about how technology, the delivery of sound, has evolved from those ancient days back in the 60s and 70s when uh, a couple speakers and a couple mics, uh, we've all heard the stories, those of us who pay attention to the the very, very modest sound system that the Beatles toured with. You want to talk for just a minute about how you've seen technology evolve over the years? Yeah, you dropped out there for a second, but uh, yeah, it has evolved quite a bit. The... uh you know, we all, everybody started with analog consoles. Heck, I had a friend, Jerry Cameron, that was in the business decades ago before you could buy a, a sound console, and he literally made his own. He uh, had panels made, had his PC boards made, mounted all his own, his own components, and then it moved from there to, to uh, basic analog consoles, and now we're to the point where, and it's such a godsend, it's so much easier. You have a digital console that can... You can store and it can remember um, 
all the settings you have from band to band and even from song to song. So your 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 day goes by much easier instead of having to take the old dots that you get from uh, your um, like the little stickers. You put a dot on the knob and then you use different color sharpies to mark the settings so that you could, every, when a band would change, you could just turn the knob back to the setting because you used uh, you basically what we call mapping the console. Nowadays, mm-hmm. digitally, nowadays digitally, it just it's uh, it's so great. You just push save and there you go. I remember when uh, uh, one of the old production people who who was uh, at the peak of his career when you and I were coming along. Uh, a guy named Jerry Marshall. Uh, I, I remember showing him the first uh, sound editing with a mouse when he was, of course, an old razor and tape man. And he just watched that and went, oh, my God. Because he, he, you just see him think about all those hours of cutting and cutting tape and taping it together. He was, uh, <laughs> he, he was quite moved, so to speak. Uh, oh yeah, let me yeah ask. That, that was that was a day where you had to have all these automatic reel-to-reel machines that would stop, you know, at the end of a right. song and then and then restart it. Now it's it's just digitally on a laptop or something. It's wonderful. Yep, I actually saw a guy at a concert recently walking around with an iPhone, adjusting through an app the sound system for the whole house PA, and it just it blew my mind. And of course, we, you and I have been around the technology for a long time. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, you, you've listened to and engineered so many different kinds of music. Um, when you're in your car, what do you listen to? I don't even have a home stereo. Um, <laughs> but I, but Good I, answer. I, I, I do listen to the car stereo. Um, I I don't know some of the oldies rock and country music. Uh, here's a story for you. As I've done so many shows, I learned through the years, you know, two things. One, people come up to you and say, "Hey, what's your favorite music?" And I'd say, "Well, you know, it's all not bad. Um, my my goal and my hope was be whatever I'm having to work on for that specific day, whatever music genre it is, that the band would just do a nice job." you know, so that I can take what they're providing me and put it out, you know, basically amplified. I'm not a conductor. I'm basically just amplifying and adding effects and things to what they are doing on stage. But uh, the other thing was uh, we used to do a lot of the performing arts with communications people, PACE, and Mm -hmm. I found it was so unusual. There were basically only two music genres that people wouldn't complain about. Like, we do all these things on the beach, and people show up because it's a quote-unquote free concert, not, and they weren't necessarily expecting anything specific. And they'd show up, and if there was, a like, a small rock band performing, they would do and ah and leave. But the two music genres that everybody sat still, or at least if they did leave, they didn't complain, was either jazz or country music. Um, mm-hmm. It was just so... I mean, it wasn't unusual because they're, they're both so... They're both somewhat easy listening, and, and uh, you know, you don't get wound up for the older folks. So, um, you know, that's a couple ideas of what's, what happened with the music industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, another question I want to ask you is, um, you know, you, you were able to take, you know, a not-for-profit gig and turn it into a very, very 
powerful and very recognized and, and respected sound company. Um, we've seen so many sound companies come and go, so many production outfits uh, come, blossom, bloom, and fade away. What do you think kept you in it so long? Did, obviously, you must have enjoyed it, but wh- what? how do you explain your longevity? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I was quite fortunate that Pace helped put me on the map. You know, as moving here as a, a sound person had a small amount of sound equipment, I actually ended up renting it to Pace or leasing it to Pace by the month and then was also an employee. Uh, I guess the longevity, uh, this whole business is all about word of mouth. Um, the uh, Pace would refer me to other gigs or they would hire me or hire me out after. They kept me around for two years, so and then their funding ran out, so they still needed to contract somebody, so they contracted me to do some of their events and or referred me for their events. I guess the longevity is um, falls down to the old story of, uh, you know, hard work. I, I joke about something that you don't have to work 110% to be successful. You actually only have to work 10% harder than everybody else, and that's kind of what I did. <laughs> It's, well, it's I, I know back and, when and, I was contract. Go ahead. And and um, the other fact is when I would work with bands, um, you know, we would speak to them. We would advance the show and we would talk to them. And some of the, you know, high-end bands, they had specific requests and specific wants. And I would advance the show and I'd talk to the production people and I would supply it and, you know, just cater to them and do a good job. And uh, they would be another referral the bands would say hey off the wall who you're hiring they would request people and ask them who you're hiring in the industry so bands were a big plus for us in this industry and and just doing a good job and telling a promoter what you'll do and sticking to it not lying um that was basically it you know being honorable well i i had the great good fortune of of uh, hiring your services many times and you're always thorough responsible, professional, and you really did what was needed and uh, in some very difficult, difficult situations. So I I have nothing but tremendous respect for the work that you've done over the years and really salute you for, for staying in the industry as long as you had. Uh, and uh, now, do I understand you have retired from it? I don't know that you'll ever retire from what you love. Um yeah, and, it, and certainly, um, I was fortunate enough to, and I'll say this: that they say in life that if you can make your hobby your job, then you'll never really hate going to work. And there was days I hated getting up at 5 a.m., but I never hated going to work <laughs> and, and and going to bed at 5 a.m. and and uh, but I never hated the job because it was always enjoyable. You, whatever you did, you know, you you got something out of it musically, financially, comrades in the arms, you know, it was just always good. But yes, I have retired. Uh, two years ago, I just got to the point where I just didn't want to fight and argue with people anymore. And and uh, <laughs> I, I, I literally started selling stuff on eBay. And I sold some stuff to a, a marketing company that works with Claire Brothers. They sold a large part of my PA at one time. But uh, I was on the phone to a guy out in Texas, and he had bought some amplifiers for me and from me. And I said, "Hey, the whole company's for sale, and 
oddly enough, that little quirk came out to be a fact that, you know, a year later he got the financing and bought the company. So, yeah, I've been, I sold the company April of uh, 18 and uh, stopped working for him of April 19. And here I am, bored. <laughs> good, good for you. Good for you. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, you've done so many shows from, from uh, classy things in uh, high-end uh, hotels in the finest theaters in town to, you know, street corner bands on the corner, uh, some of whom are quite famous now. Uh, is Was there a gig uh, or is there a, a, a project that you would have just loved to do that you never did? Um... I, I can't say that there is, to be honest with you. <clears throat> I mean, our the music I've done is, you know, Lionel Richie, Elton John, you know, uh, even Jerry Marshall, who you mentioned. I worked for Jerry Marshall doing his sound for a year or so. There are just so many artists. Um, I was a freelance sound guy when I first started working at night at the same time I was working with Pace doing sound mixing sound at the airliner and I was just delighted how many different jazz musicians came through that venue it was such a treat for anybody um, but as far as missing out on something um, yeah I don't know uh, I mentioned a guy named Jerry Cameron and he joked with me because he used to set up huge systems ZZ Top uh, you know Marshall Tucker and all touring back in the 70s and he told me one day that uh, you won't have anything if you got 100,000 watts. So uh, I guess one of my accomplishments is feeling that, okay, I, I got 300,000 watt PA now. But as far as musically, um, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Musically, musically, I don't feel that I, I missed out on a lot. Um, now I kind of, it's, I'm a little bummed that I have to go pay to see a concert instead of seeing all the <laughs> all the music for free, but... That's okay. I don't mind. I don't uh, mind putting putting money back in the music economy. Sure, sure. I I can I can picture you on so many <laughs> stages uh, that we shared, uh, from uh, a Cayocho of uh, in the middle of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, to uh, a, a little show in a park that maybe sixty people came to, and you put your effort into every one. You always. Uh, you always cared about your work, and that that has endlessly impressed me. Um, <laughs> one other question I was going to ask you is, uh, of of the things that you, you know, music has changed so much. The music business has changed so much. Um, is the, is there something that you miss from the old days of music that uh, we don't see anymore? Besides, for example, LPs. <laughs> the LPs, ah. I, I actually sold all my LPs uh, a few months ago because I just wasn't playing them, and they were sitting around. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I missed the jazz scene that was in Miami that really doesn't exist anymore. Um, uh, I'm bad. sure I'm sure it's somewhere, but yeah, uh, when you and I started, or when I started, um, I met you eight, ten years after. The jazz scene was huge in Miami, and it was always enjoyable. Um, and I guess my favorite music genre would probably have to be jazz. Uh, but nowadays, it's just it, there's there's not all the venues. Uh, the economy, the people out there, don't promote, don't 
spend money on jazz music. They'd rather go to a club and listen to dance music. I was just thinking the other day about uh, when you and I were putting uh, uh, shows in the middle of the Falls shopping mall down on a little stage over a, over a simulated creek. And, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we did some amazing venues, my friend. And, uh, you know, talk about some places where staging was difficult. My God. I remember we did a uh, we did the Fourth of July shows. Uh, uh, we I remember one time the, the Almond Brothers with uh, op- open with Ico um, uh, Ico uh, or I know I guess maybe it was Fat Chance Blues Band back then. But uh, what what a you know it's so difficult to do staging on sand and you know putting putting PA down in the middle of a mall. Uh, it's it's it's. Amazing some of the challenges that you got to do every day. Uh, if you were to, to rank maybe just one or two of your most difficult staging projects, could could you think of one? I guess my the one job that uh, that I actually walked over to the promoter and told them I'd give them all their money back if they'd let me go home was doing something <laughs> at the um, at that little mall down in Coconut Grove. I can't think of the name of it. But uh, they had hired me to produce the show, so I supplied. A, I was supplying a stage and a roof, sound lighting, video, a camera. And uh, five days before the event, my staging company called me up and said, oh, my truck's stolen, I can't do it. So I had to find a new staging company, which wasn't that difficult, but he wouldn't put up a roof. And then <laughs> so, I ha- so I had to go rent a roof from a tent company, you know, the, out- the backyard tent company. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. So I went and picked up the hardware and the canvas and everything and so and was ready to do it. So the day starts out that I'm parked out in the street getting yelled at by the police as we're trying to unload the truck and the <laughs> da- and, and the underneath the dash the truck catches on fire and I'm spraying it with oh. soda or, or whatever I had in my hand and it wouldn't start, it wouldn't move. So I, uh, the cops, cops yelling at me, please move the truck. I said, sir, I, it won't start. We're going to tow it. I said, sir, if you can get here and tow it before the, before the Penske truck company can get here and tow it, then God bless you. Cause I don't know what, you, I don't know how, what you expect me to do. So it went from that to moving another truck and the, it was raining. So I, as I went to park the truck, it was such a narrow little alley. I took out a piece of fence. So that was $800 out of the budget. And then later in the day, as we're putting up the roof, uh, the tent company gave me the two the panels for the roof. Uh, I had to lace them together. I never in my life laced a tent together. You know, how do you lace a tent together? <laughs> so I'm sitting there lacing the tent together while everybody's hollering at me. I get it together. We build it. We put it on top of my ground support system and raise my ground support system. Then we're hanging a backdrop that the client had made or I had made or wherever it came from. And it was so windy, I didn't realize that the wind coming through the uh, shopping center was just a big funnel. So all the wind, and it was blowing the backdrop. And so I had to go to the client and explain to her, I'm going to have to cut wind breaks in your backdrop. And that upset her. And, you know, it just, the, the day just continued to go on and on and on. And at the end of the day, um, um, I got the videotape from uh, from the guy that was recording the video, and my sound was on the videotape, but the video the video guy never got the, the image, the video onto the tape. 
So I said, hey, guess, yep, so I'm going, so uh, sorry, ma'am, I got a videotape, but with no video, only sound, and, uh, you know, and she accepted it, and so I go back in a week to pick up my balance of my check, and she says, oh, you said that you weren't going to charge me. I said, ma'am, I never said that. I said, if you'd let me go, if you'd let me go now, I wouldn't charge you, (laughs) and thankfully, um, uh, one of her assistants confirmed that I what I had said was correct and uh she ended up cutting the check for me but uh yeah that was probably one of my worst events that was you know every now and then you get one you go oh can I just please go home I mean in general (laughs) in general you do some of these jobs and you and you oh my god I can't wait till the end of the day so I can go home and go to sleep and wake up tomorrow and start a new day but this one was just so aggravating all day long Everything that could happen did did happen. My last uh, sound and lighting production was very memorable also. It was uh, two days before Hurricane Andrew. I'd been producing a series of concerts on South Beach in this lovely performance park. And I'd been doing it for six years. And uh, this, this one Friday on the way to the show, my truck died. I got another truck and... Uh, Gotten, got to the show just in time, did the show, and then taking the gear back, the truck broke down again, nah. the second truck, and uh, I had had to have my van towed and left it at a friend's house. And then on that was that was Friday and Saturday. Then Sunday, uh, I heard that, oh, there's a hurricane coming. <laughs> so my truck ended up being pushed around by the storm. Uh, the wow. storm blew down the, the uh, stage. Uh, this beautiful gullwing uh, fly, and uh, so the the city decided they weren't going to do any more shows there. So that uh, that weekend ended my outdoor uh, concert production years. I uh, I said there's got to be an easier way. So nowadays when I go out to a show, I I carry a laptop and uh, do a digital production. It's a lot simpler. No. No, in general, South Florida, I mean, we're in the subtropics. So in South Florida, you have to pretty much realize that if you do anything during the summer times of the year that you can expect to possibly get rained on. And uh, there were many, 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 so many times that I cringed as it rained, knowing that, okay, my gift is supposed to last 15 years. Now it's going to last 14 or 13 or 12. Because it's just, <laughs> how, how much moisture can you get in this stuff and try to dry it out before it craps out, you know? But in general, music, the, the, the gear only lasted a few years, you know, 10 years anyway, because of the technology advances that, uh, you know, everybody wanted the latest and greatest. Well, Blair... Simmons, I want to thank you so much for sharing some of your experiences with us. Uh, you're a production professional in the greater Florida area with an impeccable, an impeccable reputation because you really care and you help so many people get their work out and shared it with so many audiences. I want to thank you for joining us for a few minutes. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. You have a really good day, my friend. I'm happy to be there. Thank you for calling. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And we're back. I'm about to put on uh, Olivia Faith, or Faith Olivia Babas, uh, the disability activist, talking about her challenges with Florida's Republican legislators. But I just wanted to mention 
that there's some breaking news right now with the uh, Democratic debate. Uh, Biden has laid down a plan that is being called, it seems like on Twitter, Medicare for my political convenience. So he's distinguishing his Medicare plan from Bernie's Medicare plan um, because it would just be for people who have coronavirus now and that he would set up, he'd get the military to set up tents. Uh, Think about that while you listen to Faith Olivia Babs. Hello, Faith. Hey, how are you? Very good, dear. And yourself? Good. How's my favorite lobbyist? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, hired. This was one hell of a session. Wow. Um, you know, whenever the Republicans get together in Tallahassee, there's darn good reason to be scared. Uh, <laughs> tell me the good, the bad, and the worse. Or um, the bad and the worst. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a bill, unfortunately, that we were trying to stop. Um, we figured we weren't going to, and we were correct. Um, but basically we're building, you know, more institutions in Florida, um, for people with disabilities, which is something, you know, we've been trying for decades to move away from, not build more of, um, and, you know, they were, they were kind of selling this as, oh no, they're not institutions. Well, definitely, yes, they are in, in federal law, they're defined as institutions, but they kept calling them home-like environments. Um, you know, because they have, everybody has their own private bathroom. And we were like, do they, do they honestly think that having your own bathroom, do they think this is like the master ensuite with a jetted tub and a walk-in shower? Um, and, and that makes it um, not an institution because you have a private bathroom. And they were so hung up on this private bathroom issue. Um, and we're like, you do realize that staff can lock you in that bedroom, right? But it was like they thought that this was like some spa or resort. And, well, it sounds wonderful, so it's okay if you can never leave. And, and just really, do they think, you know, your life is controlled by another person, but it's okay because they're thinking that this is like rich person rehab or something where they wake you up and you do 8 a.m. yoga and then you have breakfast and then, you know, it's, 10 a.m. tennis, I, I don't know, but like they were just, we're not grasping this. Um, I think the people behind it spend a lot more in marketing and PR than they do on the actual facilities and just, you know, their eyes were glazed over by the marketing scheme behind this. And, and they just really do not grasp what these facilities are truly like. Um, but they were just convinced that these are not institutions when, you know, we're pointing them to the statute going, yes, definitely this is an institution. Um, you know, just because it's a, a eight-bed facility and not a 200-bed facility does not make it any less institution-like. But, uh, now, it, did that, did that <laughs> get out of the legislature? Is it headed to the governor's desk? Yes, it actually made it out of the legislature twice. Um, so they're actually, it's contained in two bills. Why, why they felt the need to do this twice, I, I guess, to make extra special sure that it gets done. Um, well, they get a check for each passage. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's headed to the governor's desk. So we're hoping that um, we can get them to veto one because one has a later implementing date than the other. Um, so we're hoping one gets vetoed. That'll give us an extra session to kind of play with the other and um, get some amendments to it or 
or shield or something. I don't know, but um, but yeah. So I, I presume that there is quote a private interest, a private health care of some sort that's pushing that legislation. Yes, absolutely. The organization actually owns twenty five percent of the institutions in what are ICFs is what they're referred to, um, intermediate care facilities. They already own 25% of them. They were denied a certificate of need by ACA in 2018. Remarkably, the legislation looks exactly like their certificate of need application was verbatim that they applied for and that was denied. So, and um, new service support did this. What else has uh, gotten through the legislative uh, meat grinder? I mean, that was kind of our big thing that we were following. So we kind of lost focus of a lot of things when we were kind of trying to, you know, pump the brakes on this. But actually, we did actually have some decent legislation that made it through. So we actually got a um, non-discrimination in Oregon transplant bill that went through, um, which ironically had one of the same bill sponsors. So we're like, okay, you want to put people in institutional care, but then you want to make sure that they get organ transplants. I, I don't know how that works in your mind, but um, <laughs> but, but this one was actually a good bill. So people with disabilities often face discrimination in organ transplants. Um, even though, you know, we're covered by the ADA, this kind of is a gray area because there isn't a lot of transparency here. Organ transplant teams have a lot of leeway in deciding who gets on an organ transplant wait list and who doesn't. So there isn't really a checklist that people go through, you know, when they're making this decision and what is considered a contraindication and what isn't. So it isn't blatant discrimination necessarily. Like they're not coming out and saying, we're not going to put you on the list because of your disability. Um, And oftentimes they're denied bridge treatments because symptoms are confused with what is a symptom of organ failure and what is a symptom of disability. Um, So a lot of states, because HHS has not stepped in and made kind of national uniform policy to address this issue, um, a lot of states have started to pass state legislation um, that kind of gives people teeth to fight this. Because right now, the way this works under ADA you have to file a complaint with the Department of Justice, which can take months to get back to you to even tell you if they're going to move forward on your complaint. Um, and then if they do decide to act on it, that can take a while. And then you have to go through like a mediation process, and then they'll tell you if they're going to release your complaint for you to move forward with a lawsuit. And in that time frame, like this entire process can take years. Um, and if you're looking at somebody that has heart failure or liver failure, that person may have died before you can move forward with anything. Um, so the ADA is not particularly effective when you're dealing with discrimination in organ transplants. So this bill has a component that, you know, people can apply for injunctive relief through the circuit court in Florida. Um, so they can apply and say, you know, I think I'm facing discrimination. The circuit court can step in and, and provide relief in that capacity. Um, so this is actually very helpful. Um, so we're glad to see this piece moving forward and remain hopeful that the governor will sign that piece of legislation. Um, there's definitely some pros and cons for the disability community in the Florida legislature, but it was really eye-opening to see just across the board. And, you know, it doesn't matter if somebody had a D behind their name or an R behind their name, just 
how much of a lack of understanding there is when it comes to disability policy. Um, I felt like this week and last week in particular that I was trying to teach people calculus when they had just learned like addition and subtraction. Um, (laughs) Because we're throwing terms at them that they had no idea what these things meant, you know, and we're throwing the acronyms at them like ICF and IDD and um, ID group homes. And they had no idea what these things meant. Most of them, you know, they, they've heard of the iBudget, but they don't know anything about this program. And so we're trying to give them crash courses on it. And most of the time you meet with somebody, you get 10 minutes to talk with them at most. You know, oh, so we're sorry. like chasing people down the hallway, trying to explain why this is a bad bill and, you know, sending them bullet points and emails to use and questions and debate. And, um, it, yeah, and, and, and these bills were just flying through committee with no opposition, no questions, no nothing. So the fact Jeez. that they actually, I mean, they passed and we were expecting them to pass, but the fact that there was actually some opposition finally when they got to the floor um, and that it passed on party line, that was actually kind of a victory for us um, that we did get some opposition and some debate and questions on these bills because nobody had any clue. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got some support from our good Democrats up there. That's 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 good news. Um, let me ask you a question. You know, you you posted a couple times uh, over recent months about some of the challenges you've had uh, getting uh, your vehicle replaced, and I don't know if you want to talk about that or do you want to stay strictly with you know legislative matters. But I thought that those little essays that you published really gave people an insight to, you know, basically just how hard you have to work, even when things are theoretically going be- going good. Would you want to talk about that, or do you want to stay strictly to the legislative stuff? Um, sure, I can. Um, you know, I don't think a lot of people really understand how these programs work and, um, you know, how – challenging it is, I think, for the disability community, how we're still not really completely fully integrated into society, even though I think a lot of people think, okay, you have the ADA, we did that, we're done, the end, conversation over. Um, You know, you're going to be really hard-pressed to find a person with a disability that does not use some type of program, despite our income level, um, you know, we, we all use something, I think, in, at some point, whether it's, you know, I think people think of the big four with SSI, SSDI, Medicaid, Medicare, um, but we all have to use something, whether that is paratransit or um, public transportation or, you know, we all need some sort of accommodation that is provided by some type of government program. Um, regardless, like I said, of income level, if we were born with a disability, if we acquired disability, it doesn't matter. Um, for me, it is voc rehab. Um, you know, I work full time. I am a very privileged person with a disability. Um, have not always been, but I'm grateful that I am now. But I do understand, you know, the struggles that people that are on SSI, SSDI um, deal with. Um, you know, we talked about the waiver program a little bit, and that's for people that need, like, 
um, home and community-based support. So people that need personal care attendance to help them with dressing, bathing, those types of things. I am fortunate I don't need that assistance because that keeps people trapped at a level of poverty. If their income exceeds, you know, I think the income level for that is like 27000 a year. If you make 27000 in $1 a year, you're cut off from that program. So we have people that have like bachelor's and master's degrees that can't earn over $27,000 a year because their personal supports are cut off. Um, Voc Rehab doesn't have those same income restrictions. Um, this is kind of a short-term program of we'll provide you if you need um, for people that are blind or visually impaired, they need JAWS, which is a screen reader type of program for work. And so they'll buy that program for them for work. Um, they'll do home modifications for people that have moved for a job. Um, for me, it's their modifications and home modifications. So I need adaptive equipment for my van for me to drive. Um, so this is, you know, a short type of service that they do for me. And this will actually be my third card now. Um, I've had my current one for 13 years, so this is not something that they do frequently. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's very expensive, um, you know, um, mobility equipment and these types of modifications are only in demand for the disability community. So things like our power chairs and um, home modifications that we need are really expensive. So I use a power chair as well. Um, insurance typically doesn't pay for these things like private insurance, which is another reason why a lot of people are trapped on SSI, Medicaid, those two programs go hand in hand. Power chairs, mine is like the cheapy model. Mine is kind of, and, and these things are comparable to cars, right? Um, so I call mine the, you know, Kia model of power chairs. because it's a <laughs> But it is like a, a cheapy car. It is like $10,000 for the cheap model of a power chair. Um, people that need custom ones, these things can range from forty dollars to $50,000. So it is a car. Wow. Um, so when we're getting into like van modifications, um, I have to buy the car. The state does not buy me a car. I promise I'm not getting a free car from the state. It's not Oprah Winfrey where you get a car and you get a car and you get a car. Um, so I buy the car. Um, the state does the modifications for me, which are actually more than the cost of the car. So it's wow. like having, you know, a Lamborghini that I have to pay for, or well, the state pays for its mods, but I have to do the maintenance for it. So this, like I said, is a short service. Um, and it takes a while. So you have to apply for the service. They, you know, confirm your eligibility that yes, you do have the disability. You're trying to seek employment or maintain employment. Um, you know, you meet with a rehab engineer that confirms that you need the service. Um, you know, for my job, I do tend to travel some, so I do need a car, um, because of the hours that I work, you know, paratransit's not going to necessarily work for me. Um, so yes, I do need the service. Um, and like I said, something they do every, you know, 10 years, whenever the car is about to die, I've made this one last 13 years. So I've got some mileage and some time out of it. Wow. Um, you know, I think a lot of people see how, how active you are and how much work that you do. And they, they have no appreciation for what goes into keeping that ability, that mobility, and that ability to go and attend the legislature and work with these people. Uh, and, and I thought it was very, uh, very important to understand just 
the complications about getting your your next car uh, so that it can accommodate your challenges. Yeah, and, you know, um, sometimes I feel like an army of one <laughs> up at the legislature. You don't see a whole lot of disabled people at the legislature. Um, sometimes you hear the people speaking on disability issues, but they're not necessarily people with disabilities. And, um, you know, there's there's some talk back and forth of people want to give a voice to people without a voice. And, you know, there are people in the disability community that, that can't get there, um, that are nonverbal, that have guardians that have been deemed mentally incapacitated. And, and so they do need someone to speak on their behalf. My pushback to that is that this is a community with 65 million people. Um, and there are plenty of people in the disability community that have a voice that understand the needs of people that aren't necessarily like ourselves, like me, I have a physical disability, but I have been around people across the spectrum um, of the disability community. And so I, I understand the needs of people that aren't necessarily like myself, but I feel that I can speak on behalf of others within the community that I have grown up with and that I have lived around and that I have worked with and that I have been submerged within this community. And I have been in the game, whereas somebody that is not a member of this community, um, they're going to be a little more willing to compromise on other people's rights if you are not losing something yourself. Um, and I think that has been a big problem with disability rights is that we keep sending people in to negotiate that don't stand to lose something themselves when they're making compromises. And so we keep seeing the disability community losing ground because the people going in to speak on our behalf don't have anything to lose. And, you know, whenever we have budget cuts, which we're looking at, you know, the market crashing and you know, lawmakers now talking about, well, maybe we need to shrink the state budget a little bit. It's always the disability programs that get cut um, because there's nobody up there that really represents this community and the legislature itself specifically um, that understands this, that gets, you know, how much these programs affect us. And so when I'm looking at, you know, the fact I need a new car, that's a really expensive, well, expense for the state. I get that. But without that, I can't function. I can no longer do my job. I'm back on programs like SSI and Medicaid to pay for things because I can no longer do the things I need to do in order for me to function. Um, what this doesn't get is that for like every dollar I make, I end up like losing three because the state only pays for the modifications. They don't pay for repairs for, you know, as the thing ages not only do I have to maintain the car, I have to maintain the modifications in there, which are really expensive. Um, sure. So it's kind of like maintaining three cars and I have to maintain the chair, um, which, you know, they will help buy the chair, but um, I actually just bought batteries for my wheelchair yesterday. That was a $350 expense. It was like buying a battery for your car. Um, so really wow. between the car and the chair, it's kind of like having four cars and that's on top of, you know, my regular living expenses because, um, you know, we, we have this discussion about 
subminimum wage of the disability population and right. it's okay because you know, it gives them purpose and people with disabilities don't care <laughs> about money. Let me tell you, I absolutely care about money. Me having a disability, it doesn't absolve me from paying rent and having to buy groceries. And I went to college and I have the student loans to prove it. Nobody helped me with that. And so I have all the same expenses everybody else does on top of maintaining the wheelchair and on top of my car payment and on top of maintaining the modifications to my car and on top of just the regular expenses of having a disability that I do have more frequent doctor's appointments and I have to pay for those car um, co-pays and for medications and everything else. So our living expenses are 30 to 50% um, more higher than everybody else's. Um, on top of having the same expenses as everybody else. So we have the highest rates of poverty um, and higher living expenses than everybody else, but yet, you know, our, our, our programs that assist us are the first to face budget cuts when we depend on them more than, you know, most. Um, so it puts us in a really tough position, and yet we, you know, I'm a lot of times, like I said, the Army one kind of advocating for the disability population um, and, I don't think a lot of times our state reps really understand um, how important these programs are to us. And I don't think a lot of times it's out of maliciousness. I think it really is a complete and total lack of understanding. You know, I was wondering if you could also address, uh, I'm sure that the disability community also is facing special danger with this coronavirus uh, since, you know, they're in so many should we say compromised physical conditions sometimes uh, maybe their mobility isn't uh, such that they can be uh, you know out there stimulating their respiratory systems to make it strong and uh, of course if they're bedridden there they have the, that additional challenge of facing you know a respiratory illness that uh, can can be uh, terminal right yeah um there's there's a lot of things um First of all, you know, we're talking about social isolation. Um, as I mentioned, the disability community has the highest rates of poverty. So when you're telling people to stock up on things, well, most of the time people are kind of stretching their income just to be able to buy a week's worth of groceries and be able to maintain that. So telling people to stock up on food and, you know, hoard toilet paper and hand sanitizer, that's not necessarily something a person with a disability can do. Um, they can't afford to order takeout and have someone delivered to their house all the time because they can't afford to do that most of the time anyway. Um, a lot of times these are people that are living in congregate care because we don't have adequate HCBS services within the state. Um, so this is a population that may be living in nursing homes. Um, you know, we have the elderly population that of course is part of the disability community but then it's not uncommon to see 20, 30, 40-year-olds in nursing homes as well because of physical disabilities. Um, they are in group homes. They're in ICFs that we were talking about earlier. We have 99 ICFs throughout the state of Florida um, with 2,000 beds that are at 95% capacity. Um, so we have this population. Um, the disability community makes up about 50% of those that are incarcerated in jails and prisons. Um, so a lot of them are in congregate type settings. 
And this is where we're seeing the coronavirus spread. I mean, that's where it took hold in Washington State was in a nursing home. And that's where most of the people have died is in nursing homes. Um, you know, people have um, immunosuppressed um, conditions. So people that may have ALS or Down syndrome or those types of conditions where they do have respiratory conditions or heart conditions that go along with it. So they are susceptible to that and in order to congregate care. Um, a lot of direct care workers are low-wage workers, but they're part-time workers. These are not people that are going to want to take off time. They, number one, may not know that they're carrying the disease because a lot of people are asymptomatic. So by the time they're showing symptoms, um, they may have already spread it on the facility where they work. Um, I think, and I'm, I'm not sure, and please, if I am incorrect on this, please don't quote me on it, but I think in one of the cases, it was a staff person that actually spread it around the facility. And I don't think it was intentional, um, of course, sure. that it would purposely get somebody sick, um, but it would, may have been a staff worker that got people sick. Um, yeah. And I don't think people would choose to, but a lot of times when, you know, you're putting your paycheck. I'm gonna cut that short and come back to it. And we're gonna do a rerun of the coronavirus stuff on, uh, Monday and do a rundown of the debate. We had a little bit too much content in here for tonight, but that's okay because we got more time to cover this stuff. So uh, from everybody here at Progressive News Network, the Ides of March, March 15, Sunday. Uh, that's it for our show tonight. And, um, you know, Take care and uh, keep your social distance, and we will be talking to you real, real soon. Um, if I can find our outro music, that would be nice. Hmm, maybe not. Well, we're just going to do this without the outro music. You guys are pretty awesome. Thank you for listening. Um, I'll promote the extra show starting tomorrow, and we'll be talking again real soon, like tomorrow. I'm just going to play this for the outro. I like it. Wait.